So uh, we're looking uh, the next few weeks uh, at uh, good news of great joy from uh, Luke chapters uh, one and two. Um, of course, these chapters are the background to the Christmas story and uh, nativity plays are being rehearsed even as I speak. Um, my wife, for one, is, uh, is rehearsing at school ready for the nativity play. And here uh, on the, I think it's around about the 17th of December, we have, sorry, 19th, thank you. We have New Hall Juniors coming into 17th. I was right, see? <laughs> uh, yeah, we have New Hall Junior School coming in here and they perform their Christmas assembly to uh, the whole school and to lots of parents and grandparents who fill the balcony in the back of the church. So we're in that run up, aren't we, to, uh, to nativity season um but i want to ask the question this morning is this really true or is it just a fairy tale now before you throw me out of the church as a heretic i want to say right up front that i believe that this is true that luke's account is historical um but i want to show you why i believe that you see if this stuff is really true and not a fairy tale or a myth, then it should make all the difference in the world to how we live. If Jesus really is the son of God, who was born to the Virgin Mary, if he's really God in the flesh, that should make all the difference in the world to how you and I live. That's the challenge. Because God wants us to be confident in his word and in the truth of his word he doesn't want to kind of for us to half believe it or to believe parts of it and leave the bits that we don't like he wants us to be fully convinced so that we can be confident and bold as christians in what we believe he wants us to be passionate in our faith and to be passionate we need to believe the stuff that's written in the bible right Otherwise, you might as well go and play golf or go to Ikea or do something else. You know, we're either all in for this or we're not, right? And Luke writes so that Theophilus will be confident in what he's recording. It's, we don't exactly know who Theophilus is. It's likely that he was a wealthy person of influence because he's, Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. And it's likely that he had wealth and that he funded Luke's um, writing of this gospel, that he supported Luke financially. But it seems that Theophilus is not entirely convinced of the certainty of the things that are going into the gospel. So Luke says to Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of things you've been taught. Certainty. Not, well, it might be true, it would be nice if it was true. Not, well, it sounds a bit like a fairy tale. No, that you would know the certainty that this is true. Now, you might think asking churchgoers if they really believe the Bible is a bit of a waste of time, but actually, no, this, this might shock you. A recent YouGov poll conducted among occasional churchgoers, I don't know what the word occasional there means, but anyway, when they were asked about 
events recorded in the Gospels, this is what the YouGov poll revealed. 58% of churchgoers believe that Jesus' birth took place in a stable. 57% believed in the role of the shepherds in being guided uh, by the star and, and uh, or sorry, that's the wise men, isn't it? <laughs> the she- the <laughs> 57% believed that the, the angels uh, sort of spoke to the, to the shepherds and told them to go and tell others. 55% believed in the wise men were guided by a star. Now here's the telling one. Only 42% of occasional churchgoers believe in the virgin birth. Wow. Didn't we just sing that at the start of the service? I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. Crumbs. 42% only. Now, why am I making a meal of this? Well, I'm making a meal of it because if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then he's not fully God and fully human, right? And if he's not fully God and fully human, he's not who the Bible says he is. Now that's a big deal. So less than half of occasional churchgoers believe in the virgin birth. Wow. You see, Jesus had to be born through a virgin because scripture says that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? That the in some miraculous way mary's um egg in her womb was fertilized through the holy spirit i don't know how it's a mystery it's a miracle isn't it but that's what the bible says and it had to be through that way because god had to be involved Jesus had to become fully human. He could only become fully human as well as fully God if he was conceived by God through a human body. So do you see what happens? If you take away the virgin birth, you lose that the eternal son of God became a human being, fully God and fully human. So you can't sit on the fence when it comes to the virgin birth. You're either believing it or you're not. You won't be surprised to know that the same YouGov poll showed that a significant proportion of the general population don't believe the following aspects of the gospel accounts of the Christmas story. Here we go. So an angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds to announce the birth of Jesus. 51% don't believe it. I checked these stats, by the way, that they add up before I, because somebody will say they don't add up. 51% don't believe it. 20% don't know. 29% do believe it. That wise men were guided by a star and bought Jesus gold, frankincense and myrrh. 44% don't believe it. 19% don't know. 37% do believe it. The newborn baby Jesus was laid in a manger. 47% don't believe it. 24% don't know. 29% do believe it. So a significant majority of the population out there don't believe that the Bible is the historical record of the facts and truths of the Son of God being born as a human being. They don't. So what are people doing when they come to church at Christmas? Well, the same YouGov poll suggests that when people come to church at Christmas, they're coming to sing the carols, that people enjoy the romantic sort of traditional nature of carol singing. They love it. Even Richard Dawkins, the 
self-confessed atheist has gone on record as saying he loves to come and sing carols. He doesn't believe a word of it, but he loves the, the atmosphere of it, the kind of traditional nature of it. That's what many people are doing. It's a kind of, it's a kind of fairy story, but we like doing it. It's kind of traditional, it's nice, it's kind of nice thing to do this time of the year in the dark and the cold, you know, to have lights and to be singing together. It's a community event, it feels good. Folks, this is either true or it isn't, right? Um, now there's nothing new about people not believing the facts and truths of the, of the Bible, by the way. In the, 20th, in the early part of the 20th century, a group of scholars took the view that the gospel stories were folk literature, like grim fairy tales. You remember Grimm's fairy tales? They asserted that stories of Jesus were passed down orally, which they were, by way of anonymous community traditions, and that over time, the stories took on a life of their own, independent of the actual events they originated from. Have you ever played Chinese whispers or the telephone game? You know, you have people in a, in a, in a, in a row or, or in a circle and you pass on a, a, a fact. And by the time you get to the end of the line or round the other side of the circle, what was said that's reported back by the last person in the chain only vaguely resembles what was said originally. And it's quite, it was quite a funny game to play, wasn't it? But things get altered as you go down around the circle or down the line. And liberal scholars in the 20th century believed that, that, it was a, that this was the way that the gospel accounts worked. They believed it was like the Chinese whispers or the telephone game, that someone starts telling a person a particular fact, then the longer it goes on, the more it's passed down through the chain of the generations, it gets tweaked and altered so that the last person in the chain, it only very vaguely resembles what was originally spoken. That's what the liberal scholars claim. A major problem with this theory is that many of the eyewitnesses in Jesus' life were still alive and active in the church well after the gospels were written. In other words, one of the gospel writers, Marx, um, includes details of people who were still living in his gospel account so that you can go and ask them if you want to check the facts. Richard Borkham, I got, this is quite a scholarly read, but it's a good read. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Um, this, is a, this is a great book. My faith went up several notches reading this book. And the reason is that Richard Borkham is, is a distinguished Cambridge scholar, and he shows that um, many of the uh, details include of people's names included in all of the Gospels are there because they function as authoritative witnesses of the events. Many of them were still alive when the Gospels were written. So in other words, what Luke and Mark and Matthew and John are saying is, look, if you, don't, if you want to really believe this, go and speak to the people I've named in my Gospels. Go and talk to them because they were there with Jesus. Go and ask them. Go and check the story. So unfortunately, the, the liberal scholarly approach doesn't work because we have to modify the Chinese whisper game. And this is, this is how we have to modify it. Um, rather than the liberal scholars sort of winning out and saying, well, the message was altered down the generations and over the years, it didn't work like that. Richard Borkham has shown that it didn't work like that. 
the, the, the witnesses were still around when the gospels were written. So they would check that what was passed on was actually true. Um, so it would be like Chinese whisper game. The person who originally shared the fact, as it's passed down the line, that person who originally shared would listen in and check that the message passed on was accurate and true each time. That's how it works. The witnesses would make sure that it was passed on accurately. Um, I haven't got time to go into the details, but read the book. It's, it's an amazing scholarly read. And Borkin himself is a, is a his, historian at Cambridge and he knows what he's talking about. There was an oral tradition. In this culture, um, truths, facts were passed down orally by a community and they were self-verifying. They, self, um, they would check the facts with one another. Skilled historians used eyewitness accounts at the time. We see this in Luke's opening verses where he refers to himself being a careful and ordered historian. Luke wants Theophilus and us as his readers to have confidence that what he writes is true. And to do this, he first writes that he's writing truths about Jesus that are a fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Second, he writes with a passion for historical accuracy. So first, Luke wants to show how ancient promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled. This is what he says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. In other words, there were lots of histories being written at the time, um, not just by the gospel writers. I'll come to Tacitus and Pliny the Younger and Josephus in a moment. But there were lots of histories being written of the, of the, of the accounts of Jesus' life. But Luke wants to say, look, hundreds of years before Jesus came and I wrote my gospel, people like Isaiah and the other prophets were telling us who this Messiah would be and how he would live and how he would die and how he would rise again. Isn't that amazing? So Luke's gospel is authenticated on the basis that hundreds of years before, for example, in the time of Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah was, for, was foretelling, prophesying about Jesus. Um, so, for example, Jesus turns up in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, with the scroll. They didn't have a book like this, so they would have a scroll. And he opened the scroll and he started reading from Isaiah chapter 61. And uh, this is what he would have read. Isaiah 61. He read out, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning. And do you know what he did? After he read out that prophecy from Isaiah, this is what he said. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. In other words, in me, 
this scripture is fulfilled. I am the Lord's anointed Messiah. I am the one Isaiah wrote about 700 years before that is, that is anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. I am the one who will fulfill this ministry. And how did Jesus fulfill the ministry? We see it through the gospel, don't we? He laid hands on the blind and they could see. He healed the lepers. He brought back from the darkness, the lost, the hopeless, the, the sick, the demon possessed, and he set them free. He proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor as he preached, and he set the oppressed free as he healed them and freed them from demons. That's how Jesus fulfills the ancient prophecies. He doesn't just say, I'm the one. He then goes and does the stuff and proves it. Or I could give you hundreds of uh, fulfilled prophecies. But on the night before his death, Jesus sees his own death on the cross as fulfillment of Isaiah's ancient prophecy. And he quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 12, Luke uh, 22 verse 37 it is written and this is from Isaiah 53 and he was numbered with the transgressions and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me the night before Jesus died he prophesied that he would be put to death that he would be numbered as a criminal and he was he was sentenced to death on Good Friday the day after and put to death on a cross executed as a common criminal. Jesus didn't have control over these events, did he? He couldn't have lived, he couldn't have engineered the Romans and the Jews putting him to death. Um, even his own birth was prophesied about, wasn't it, by Micah? In Bethlehem, it's pretty hard to engineer your own death, isn't it? Your own birth, isn't it? So the place of his birth was prophesied. Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies in one day, according to Nicky Gumbel. That's quite a lot of prophecies. He was whipped, beaten, spat on, insulted. In other words, everything that Isaiah 700 years before had said would happen to Jesus happened to him on Good Friday. Now, if that doesn't give you cause for confidence and certainty in the gospel, I don't know what would. The gospel is in total continuity with the Old Testament prophecies. Everything written about Jesus in the Old Testament came true in his life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. None of these events were in Jesus' control. They were things that happened to him. Luke, you see, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that he fulfilled the ancient prophecies about him. Second, Luke writes with a passion for historical accuracy. Uh, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus. In other words, Luke wants us to see that he's been careful and ordered as a historian. You can trust what he's writing. Now, some might object that since Luke and others had an agenda to win people to Jesus, you know, they souped up the truth. They, they tweaked the truth in order to make their account more convincing. 
But I've already described, they couldn't have got away with that. There were many witnesses still alive when these gospels were published. They simply wouldn't have got away with it. But not only that, there were many eyewitnesses around who were hostile to Jesus and opposed the apostles. If the early Christians had written historically inaccurate facts about Jesus and given wrong dates and all the rest of it, one of those opposed to them would have said something. But in fact, what you find is challenges to the historical accuracy of the Gospels come hundreds of years after they were written, not in the early years. You won't find historians, even secular ones, just after the Gospels were written that will challenge the, the basic facts of the Gospel. People like Dan Brown, who wrote the Da Vinci Code, are writing about myths that grew up hundreds of years after the Gospels were written. He needs to get his facts sorted out. He's not a historian, he's a novelist, by the way, but people believe this stuff and it's nonsense. Three secular historians, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger and Josephus, wrote historical accounts about Jesus within 90 years of his birth. None of these historians doubts the basic historical facts that Jesus was executed and that he was a great teacher. Josephus, as a Jewish secular historian, is a bit warmer towards Jesus, but Tacitus and Pliny are outright hostile. In fact, Tacitus likens the spread of Christianity to being like the spread of a disease. But he doesn't disagree with any of the facts, which is interesting. So, for example, Tacitus records that Christ was put to death while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. And we record, we see that in Luke's gospel, um, that this is fulfilled as true. It's, they, they agree. So somebody totally hostile to the gospel of Luke agrees with basic historical dating and facts in Luke's gospel. Don't you think this might be true? Listen to Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish secular historian, not a believer. This is what he writes. Now, there was about this time Jesus a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold, these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, are not extinct at this day. I love that, the tribe of Christians. <laughs> Did you know you're a tribe, according to uh, Josephus? In other words, you can trust this stuff. Even secular historians wrote that this was factual. This is not myth, right? All this stuff has come in much, much later after the Gospels were written. Even secular historians agree with the basic facts of the gospel. They may not agree with Jesus being born by a virgin and, and all of the details of his resurrection, but they certainly believe that the, the historical reliability of the gospels. You see, Luke tells Theophilus why he's written this account, verse 4. I myself have, uh, yeah, verse 4, we'll carry on, jump so that you may know the certainty of things you have been taught. God wants you and I to be certain 
that this book is his word. It makes all the difference if you believe that this is God's word, that it's historically based. God wants you to be confident and certain that the things recorded in here are from him. And if you really believe this book, you will be bold, you will be confident, you will be passionate and all out for Jesus. If you don't believe this book, you won't be passionate for Jesus. You won't be. How can you be? But you have to get read right to the end of Luke's gospel to find out why you need to be confident. Why does God want you to be confident as a Christian? Why does he want you to be sold out for Jesus and passionate? Well, I'll tell you. Because if you, if you love something, you'll tell people about it, right? If you're passionate about something, you'll tell people. Anybody got a hobby? Anybody? You, you don't have to be told to share your passion, do you? When a baby comes along, you don't, somebody doesn't have to nudge you and say, well, don't you think you ought to tell people that, you know, you've had a baby, right? <laughs> you just want to get it out there. It's good news, isn't it? I've had a baby. I'm a grandparent. I'm a great grandparent. I'm a parent. Wow. Woo-hoo! Right? Shouldn't it be the same with our faith? Isn't this what we're passionate about? Because it's based on fact and truth not fiction why are we so reticent why are we so lacking in confidence we should be confident and this is why he said to them his disciples this is what i told you while i was still with you everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of moses the prophets and the psalms then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures he told them this is what is written the messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at jerusalem i am you are witnesses of these things there it is why does God want you and I to be certain and confident? And because we are witnesses that this stuff is true, right? That's why he wants us to be confident in it. Barely needs to be said. Why were the first disciples so confident? Because they believed. We have a book that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that is historically accurate. And we have found in our own experience as Christians that when we invite Jesus into our hearts, he makes all the difference in the world. So we ought to be confident and certain in his words. So certain that we cannot keep in the good news that's transformed us, right? So bold, so confident, based on the truth of God's word. So it's not just a, it's not a dry, dusty history lesson this morning. Well, is this really true? Well, that'd be boring, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, oh, yes, I, I do believe in Luke's gospel. It appears to be historically accurate. No, that's not what we're about this morning. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the virgin birth. And if that's true, 
It's going to make every difference to the way I live. I'm going to be sold out and passionate for Jesus. I'm not going to be able to keep this stuff in because other people need to know it. It's good news of great joy for the whole world. It's good news for my neighbors, my work colleagues, my family members. So I'm going to tell them. Sometimes people are a bit awkward around me telling people because I'm not always very subtle. Um, but you know what? We've only got so many years on this planet. I want to get the good news out there. And I don't mind if, uh, if I make somebody feel slightly uncomfortable by having a conversation about the meaning of life and eternity. Because they need to know. And I need to share it. Because if I don't, where do I leave them? Let's pray. Jesus, um, I kind of want to say sorry to you for the lack of confidence that we and certainty that we have in the truths that have been passed on to us in scripture. Lord, it should make all the difference in the world. And yet we find ourselves lacking in passion. Lord, we find ourselves time and again, kind of not wanting to break the mold or upset convention or offend anybody. Lord, if this is true, it makes all the difference in the world. Jesus, if you are the son of God, the eternal son of God who was born of the Virgin Mary, so that we could have life and be forgiven and brought into eternal life, other people need to know. Forgive us, Lord, for our reticence. Forgive us our English reserve and excuses. Lord, give us a boldness through the power of your Holy Spirit to go and tell others the good news of great joy. Lord, give us such a confidence and certainty in your word that we cannot keep quiet. Holy Spirit, fill us afresh with power, with certainty, with confidence, with boldness, and above everything else, with a joy that we might pass on this good news of great joy to others. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.